Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. All right. All right. We, uh, we are in our series called Torah Together. Torah is the Hebrew term for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You read Genesis and you get really excited. You get into the first part of Exodus and you're like, okay, this is still pretty cool. You get later in Exodus and you're like, there are a lot of rules here. There's a lot of descriptions about how to build a thing called the tabernacle that I'm never going to do. There's a lot of genealogies and you're going to start struggling with that. If you've been joining with us, you know that uh, you're, you're all caught up. I'm sure everybody's all current on their reading, but you know that we've just started into the book of Exodus. We finished Genesis into the book of Exodus. If you're not, do not worry. If you're feeling like, why did I come today? I don't know what's going on. They're going to talk about something that I'm not participating in. Do not worry. Stick around. You're, you're going to, I think you're going to get something out of this. If you are interested in participating in the reading, we do have these QR codes. They'll be up on the screen. You can join our Uversion app. We have a church uh, version presence. And this is kind of cool. Um, if you go on Uversion and you look at all the churches in the area that have a church presence on Uversion, like kind of in a geographic area, we, uh, we're number two in terms of participation. And I would love to be number one. So... If you want to pull your phone out and connect to Wi-Fi and get on new version, then we can, I can walk around and I can brag to all the other preachers and ministers like, we're number one, because that's what it's all about, right? That's, that's really what it's all about. Just kidding. Uh, so if you've just read Genesis and you're still kind of reeling from the stories and you're like, man, what was going on with all of that? There was some wild stuff happening in there. And then you get into Exodus and you're like, okay, I'm tr- trying to get my bearings. Let me, let me just, let's just get all on the same page here real quick. <clears throat> in Genesis, there was this thread of promise that started throughout this work. What had happened was God had created humans and humans immediately kind of started messing things up. They, it's like mom had just cleaned the house and the kids had just immediately started making it dirty again. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but that's kind of what had happened. God had created this pristine world for humans to live in and flourish and thrive and love one another. And humans were like, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're actually going to make things a lot worse. And you see this pattern of just humanity, just making these rough choices and, and you read the book of Genesis and you're thinking, man, how is this ever going to work out? Humans are a mess. And you could just open a newspaper or an app, a news app, and see that today. Just every breaking news article, like humans are a mess. But in Genesis, there's this thread of promise where God says, okay, I'm going to pick this guy. And through this guy, through this person, I'm going to create a, a, a nation that will bless the whole world. So you start off this promise with Abraham. God takes him outside and he says, look up at the stars there. You can't count them. That's how many children you're going to have. And through those children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the world will be blessed. And then you get to meet Abraham's son, Isaac, and it's kind of touch and go. You remember the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac? Spoiler alert, he doesn't. He makes it. Nation continues. Uh, you get Jacob, his son, and Jacob is a roller coaster ride from start to finish. They could make a Netflix series out of him. He is up and down all over the place, but 
He eventually has a son, number 11, that he really, really liked, maybe a little too much because the other sons got jealous. They tried to kill him. Then they said, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. And so Joseph ends up in another country. He ends up in Egypt. And, you know, you're just thinking, how in the world is this story? How is this promise of God going to make it? How is this going to work? But through God, through this, the miraculous working of God, there's a nation that rises up in Egypt. I mean, they're fruitful, they multiply, and, and, and this Hebrew population explodes in Egypt. So if you're in Exodus, if you're current, that's what's going on. You've seen all these, these, th- this lineage, and you've seen this nation thrive, and you're like, okay, great, that's awesome. In fact, in Exodus 1-7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And you're reading that and you're like, all right, this is great. God cannot be stopped. It's awesome. Nothing could go wrong now. What could happen? Dun, dun, dun. Verse 8, then a new king, a new pharaoh, to whom Joseph, who had, by the way, saved Egypt and its people, meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And this pharaoh said, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join the enemies, they'll fight against us, they'll leave the country. It's, it's bad. We've got to figure out a plan to deal with these people. So he, he comes up with three terrible solutions. Like if you're looking for a guidebook on how to be an evil dictator, this is exactly what you'd want to do. Step number one is he's like, well, let's just make them all slaves. Let's make them do all the work. Let's, just, let's not treat them well, and that keeps getting worse and worse, but let's make them all slaves. Let's take step one. Take this people group that you despise and make them serve you. And then that's not working because they still start to be fruitful and multiply. So then he asks Hebrew midwives while they're helping the women deliver the child, if it's a boy child, you should kill that child. And the Hebrew midwives don't listen. Fortunately, it's kind of, that's a whole interesting story in itself. And so he's like, all right, we got to do something else. And then the third thing he does is he commissions any Egyptians to kill any Hebrew boys. It's just, it's this ugly, awful situation. You're like, God, you were were supposed to like make us this great nation, this great powerful nation. And this is not looking good. This truly looks like it's the end of the line for everybody. It's like evil dictator for dummies with Pharaoh. And he's the anti-God. So you got God with this promise, with the Hebrew people saying, be fruitful and multiply. And you got Pharaoh saying, nope, we're going to take everybody out. This is no good. He's the anti-God. He's the villain. He's like, he's one of those villains in the movie where you just, you think he's done and then he comes back and he keeps, he's relentless. He keeps chasing. He's the prototype villain in the Bible, literally trying to undo God's plan. So here's the impossible situation, okay? They have absolutely no way out. They have no power. They're only vulnerable. There's nothing that they can do. There's no hope for them. This is the end of the line. There was a basketball game uh, recently that made news because the score was so lopsided. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever played like any high school sports and ever been on the wrong end of something like this, but it's the kind of thing that will send you to therapy as an adult because you're just like, 
It's so demoralizing to have something like this happen. I did play basketball in high school, and I never really got a chance to lose this badly because I wasn't even good enough to play. I was on the end of the bench, and they gave me, literally, I'd put my uniform on to play basketball, and then the coach would hand me the stat sheet so I could record how much better everybody else on the team was than me, like how many points they had scored, rebounds, stuff like that. So I never got this experience, but I can imagine it's pretty demoralizing. Now, imagine losing a game so badly that it makes the news. Imagine you're on that team, that it makes the news. Now, there's all kinds of dynamics happening when this sort of thing takes place. Usually, there's some bad sportsmanship going on because typically, when you get up by a lot of points, you stop trying to score so many points, you run out the clock, you put in your subs, that sort of thing. But evidently, in this case, in this particular case, this didn't happen. Now, this was, this was meaningful to me when I, when I was reading about the story. Now, I don't have anything against North Dakota State. No problem with North Dakota State. North Dakota is a wonderful place, I'm sure. I, we should all go on vacation there if you happen to be from there. But this Oak Hill is actually a Bible college. And I feel a little affinity, a little, a, a little connection to a Bible college. It's got a student body of like 80 people. So these people did not go to college to play sports. They went to college to learn how to preach. And that's, I, I'm like, I can totally relate to that. But they're going to have a little sports team while they're there, and they probably got to recruit some guys. And somehow, their athletic director got them on the schedule to play North Dakota State Division I, much better team, not the best team in college basketball, but a pretty good team, and they lost by this much. And these poor guys that are working to get their Bible degree are going to have sermon illustrations for the rest of their life <laughs> because of this experience. I remember the time. There are churches that are going to get tired of hearing it. This is precisely what is happening in the book of Exodus. You've got the Hebrew people, and they have no, no recourse. It's Pharaoh versus the Hebrews, and they are toast. That's the scenario. That's the plot. That's the scene that is being set up for us. There's no way out. Things look beyond bleak. Now, this is kind of important to know a little bit of background here. Egypt is the world superpower. There's not superpowers. It's just Egypt. Remember, Joseph had a hand in that. He had, he had, he, God had given him some insight that there was going to be seven years of blessing and seven years of famine. He collected a lot of food. And people from all over the world were coming to them to pay them money to buy food. Egypt's got all the cards. It has all the power. Joseph has turned, them, turned Egypt into this, this superpower. And Pharaoh is the most important man in Egypt. And so if Pharaoh was like, I am against the slaves, it's not looking good for the slaves. The Hebrew people are about to be lost to history. They're going to be a footnote. We're not going to know anything about them because there's no way out. It's the end of the line. That's the plot. But here's the deal. Do you remember seeing this particular picture in National Geographic? Anybody remember this? Anybody know who this is? Yeah, some of, I heard like some of you are like, I'm not confident to say it very loud, but I'll say it. I'll let people know. Anybody? Well, who's this guy? Okay. Anybody say his full name? Wow. You got, I had to list, I had to watch a YouTube video for how to pronounce it right. Cause I was like, I'm going to say it on stage and I don't want to look like a dummy, but now I don't have to say it cause you guys know it. So I, I practiced too. I, I was in my office like, Tumpton common. Is that right? You know, all right. I'm not even going to say it now. 
So he's the Egyptian pharaoh poster boy. Now, this is very fascinating. A little history stuff. If you don't like history, just buckle up for a second. We do not know who the pharaoh was during this time. We don't know who the pharaoh was that was oppressing the Hebrew people. We don't know. He is never named. He is like a nameless, faceless villain in the story. We have no idea who he is, which I think is kind of interesting. So it's not necessarily King Tut. I'm going to say King Tut because I'm not confident in my pronunciation anymore. I even practice and I'm still not there. We don't know his name. He's just this generic, nameless, faceless villain. Now, I'm jumping just a little bit ahead in the story, but this is so cool. I think you're going to like it. So, spoiler alert, God has a plan to save his people, and it's going to involve a gentleman named Moses. Moses gets commissioned to do this. Moses meets God in the form of a burning bush. Wild story. Like, what in the world is that? Why does God show up in the form of a burning bush? Why is this happening? But anyway, Moses is having a conversation with the presence of God in the form of a bush. I must, I must have looked wild from a distance to see what Moses was doing. He's having this conversation with him. And Moses is like, listen, I already know that the Hebrew people are losing 14 to 108. I do not want, coach, do not put me in at this point. I don't want to be part of this. How am I supposed to go save the Hebrew people? There's no way. You want me to go talk to Pharaoh and say, hey, Pharaoh, let us go. That's not going to happen. You know what's going to happen? Pharaoh is immediately going to kill me. I don't want any part of this. So Moses argues with the burning bush. He's arguing with God. And one of the things that he does, this is chapter 4, Verse 1, Moses answered, talking to the bush, Moses answered, well, uh, what if they do not believe me or listen to me or say, the Lord did not appear to you? Because you imagine telling this story? Like, uh, Pharaoh, um, you need to let all these slaves go, hundreds of thousands of, of people. You need to let them all go. Well, why? Well, because I was talking to this bush and the bush told me that it was God and that you need to let me go. Like, I, Moses is right. Who's going to believe this story? So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses says, a staff. He's a shepherd. He replied, the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. I love that detail. Just think that's so cool. Moses is no tough guy. I get it. I would have run from it too. I'm not a snake guy. Not my, not my thing. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And I would have been like, you first. But he does. So Moses reached out. He took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now you read that story and you're like, okay, cool magic trick, I guess. I, I bet you David Blaine could do that. I don't, is that... How is that supposed to prove that God is on my side and has told me to do that? Well, it's cool, I guess, but way more than that. The U.S. national symbol uh, is what animal? Well, I think we were all over the place there. The eagle. All right. Man, we need to go back to like do some fifth grade stuff. The eagle. All right. The bald eagle is the U.S. national symbol. Just a little fun side trivia. What did Benjamin Franklin propose should be the national bird? Oh, you guys knew that one. Yeah, all right. Very good. All right. The snake, specifically the cobra, is the national symbol of Egypt. 
So when you're looking at King Tut and you're looking at that famous headdress that he wears, what is that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like a hood on a cobra. And then you see the little snakes there at the top, two-headed snake. That's the national symbol. What God is communicating to Moses, he's saying, I am more powerful than Egypt. Whatever Egypt has planned, whatever Pharaoh thinks he's going to do, I'm way ahead of him. I'm way stronger than him. I'm way smarter than him. I, I, I have got this. God is telling Moses that things might look bleak, but do not pay attention to the score because I'm about to score a million points. Don't look at the scoreboard because we are about to win this game. Don't pay attention to the details and the circumstances and what's going on because things are about to drastically turn around. Egypt doesn't stand a chance. Now, there are clues to this throughout the text. It's so cool. By the way, so, so, so go back to chapter 1. Pharaoh says, let's make them slaves and let's just grind them into the dust with work. Let's make them slaves and just make them work so hard. Well, this isn't on the screen, but it's in your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So tactic one isn't working. All right, well, let's kill all the baby boys at birth. It's awful, terrible, horrific thing. So he tells the midwives, kill all the baby boys at birth. What do the midwives do? They do not do that. They actually make up an excuse. And they're like, these Israelite women, we just can't get there in time. They're having babies like that. I mean, we would love to kill all the babies, but sorry, for, of course, they're not telling the truth. And that's sort of an interesting little tidbit to wrestle with in the text. Like, hmm, these people that God used and blessed weren't quite being honest with Pharaoh. Totally get why they wouldn't be. Can't, can't keep up with the Hebrew women. That's not going to work. In fact, this is super cool, little detail. The Hebrew midwives are named and Pharaoh is never named. That's what he, God is trying to tell us. Listen, the, the worst guy in the story doesn't even get a name because he's not that important because I'm more powerful than him. And then finally, the third attempt to deal with the Hebrew people is like, okay, let's just kill all the baby boys. And, and this is bad, right? This is bad. This is, this is genocide. This is awful. But actually, this is the best piece of all. Because what happens when Pharaoh commands everyone to kill the baby boys? There's a Levite who has a son and whose mother raises him and for, for, for a little bit of time. And because there's this command to kill all the baby boys, she builds a little, the text literally uses the word ark, but it's a little reed basket and covers it and puts him in the Nile. They were supposed to throw the baby boys in the Nile. And technically this mom does, throws him in the Nile and it floats down. And what happens to Moses? Moses is raised by the bad guy who was supposedly trying to kill him. God is like, not only does Moses or, or, or Pharaoh have any power here, but I'm going to use him for my purposes. I'm going to make him do what I want to do. I'm going to have him raise the child that will bring about his downfall. That's how powerful God is. It's like, it's just so delicious in the story. You're just, you're supposed to read that and go like, oh man, look, this God is incredible. He is amazing. It, it's unbelievable. He literally raises the boy. It's so satisfying. It's like a self-own, right? Exodus represents or presents the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as just unstoppable. 
just unstoppable. Here's the problem. Many of you have felt overwhelmed by circumstances in your life this week. Many of you have felt overwhelmed by news of the world this week. And you're, you're thinking things look bleak, circumstances are bleak, my life isn't exactly what I want it to be, the world is not the way it should be, it just feels hopeless and it feels awful and it feels unstoppable. We're supposed to read Exodus and understand that it is God who is unstoppable. Those breaking news headlines, they mean nothing to this God. Those circumstances in your life are not overwhelming to this God. The things that feel hopeless and bleak in your life are nothing to this God. 108 to 14, not a problem. You see this unstoppableness throughout the text. I think this is the point of the beginning of Exodus. It's the point of the entirety of Exodus as, as you'll read it. But you'll see it throughout the text. The, the, the ten plagues, they correspond to Egyptian gods. And God's like, yeah, show me what gods you got. Boom, done, 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 done. Just takes them all out, one after the other. This God is unstoppable. When Pharaoh finally lets his people go, lets the Hebrew people go, and he's like, mm, I don't think we should have done that. Let's chase after them with the army. And then the people are pinned between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. God makes a way through the water. He's just, he's unstoppable. Nature can't stop him. He's got this, this nation of people wandering through the wilderness. No food, no water, no problem. He feeds them. He takes care of them. Their shoes don't wear out, the text says. He provides for them. He's unstoppable. Listen, you can't outguess. You can't outthink. You can't outstrategize God. We're the ones who are confused and we're projecting our confusion on God, but God's not confused. I think it's the point of the story over and over again. Years ago, uh, at a different job, not a ministry job, I was having a conversation with a coworker. I worked at this uh, company. We did pool repair. It was pretty fun, but we'd drive all over. This was in Oklahoma at the time. We'd drive all over rural Oklahoma, fixing people's pools and hot tubs. Um, and I was the young guy. I had a coworker who was a few years older than me. So he drove, and I sat in the passenger seat. We're in the work truck. We're on like a 45-minute drive to another small town to fix something or other. And he's a philosophical thinker, my coworker, but he is not a believer. He knew I was a Christian. He knew I was a churchgoer. And he said, he, he asked me in this, in this car ride, you know, we got 45 minutes to talk and you just talk about all kinds of stuff. He asked me in this car ride, he says, how can you believe that stuff? How can you believe that stuff? And it felt like a genuine question, you know, not a challenge, more like an invitation. And I mean, like, it's just me and him. There's no distractions. And he is just like, it's like he's setting the ball on the tee. And I'm like, I've got a lot of pressure to hit a home run here. I want to say the right thing. I, I want to have the perfect answer, right? And so I say this silent prayer. And I'm like, God, please don't let me mess this up. And then I answered him. How, how can you believe this stuff? And this answer is totally not me. This wasn't like I had been waiting for this moment. I knew exactly what to say. Totally not me. I felt like this was an answer from God in the moment. I don't even think I'd ever have this, had this thought in my brain. And I said, well, there I'm sitting in the passenger seat, right? Nervous, heart racing, and I, hoping, you know, that this has a good answer. And I said, well, um, think of the incredible sequence of events that had to take place so that you and I... We're sitting in the cab of this truck together, and you would ask me that question. Think of 
the huge variety of things and circumstances and choices and realities that had to come together so that we would be having this conversation. That was my answer uh, to him. And he got quiet for a minute and he looked out the window and he said, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? No, he didn't say that. I wish. I wish he had said that. That would have been a better story, right? He did say, he did say, okay, that blew my mind. And I was like, well, yeah. And I, and, and a few weeks later, he got mad about something and quit that job. I have no idea whatever happened in his story. I'm presuming that I was maybe one other just little turn in his story and, and, and hopefully his story kept being uh, of one being uh, uh, was a story of being drawn to God but that journey is is true for everyone like like you're in this room this morning and you probably think well I'm here because my parents made me or I'm here because I was raised and I would feel guilty if I were at home I'm here because my alarm went off. I'm here because I knew there were donuts and I wanted to make sure to get one before they were all out. I'm here because, but you have no idea what God has done in the background and the circumstances of your life to draw you to a place where you can be present. And I'm not saying that this room, being here, hearing this sermon was the point of all of it, but that God is drawing you to himself and he's unstoppable. If you were to map this out like on a, on a journey, if you were, it would look like one of those family circus things where the person's all over the place because that's you, right? It's, it's you, your story of uh, 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 if it was a thread of a journey, it would be so convoluted it wouldn't be able to be followed. And right now, maybe you're even mid-journey. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with something and, and you're waiting for another turn or God to do something or God to speak to you or God to overcome a circumstance that you find yourself in. Maybe that's you right now. But just understand that, that this God that Exodus presents us is an unstoppable God. And you may think that you've got it figured out and you may, you may even be sitting there dismissing what I'm saying right now. But I guarantee you that you, there's a God who is working in the background and the, and the circumstances of your life. And, and there may be a point eventually where he draws you to himself. He draws you to that cross and you make that choice to say, this is, this is who I am. There, I, I was thinking about this this week and I, I have told you a little bit about the story of my grandfather. Um, who, this was his journey and, and a lot of it was really, really ugly. I didn't know that when I'm a kid. He's just grandpa. But I didn't know the circumstances and the hardship and the trauma that he caused my mom and her sisters and my grandmother. I didn't know all of that. But at, toward the end of his life, to when he was way older than maybe he should have been, he was talked to by someone who said, listen, you, it's time, man. This is time for you to figure it out. And he just, he resigned himself to the fact that God had been trying to pursue him and chase him all along. And he just said, okay, I'll do what is right. And that was the moment. And my memories of my grandfather are happy memories because of that moment. Because he resigned himself to the pursuit of God, a God who is unstoppable. Let me just say this. 
In order to rescue his people, God cast aside the most powerful nation and the most powerful person on earth like it was nothing. Do you actually think that anything can or will get in the way of his rescuing you? Do you think you've committed some sin that's so bad that God's like, well, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, this is above my pay grade. I don't know what to do here. No. Whatever has power in your life, God is stronger. Whatever seems overwhelming, God is more powerful. Whatever seems hopeless, God is bigger. We didn't do communion earlier in the service because it fits so well with, with what we're going to do here. Um, and in fact, it'll be just a minute, but if you didn't get a chance to grab one of these, and maybe Eric would get that basket, and if you need to raise your hand and have him bring you one, but, but hold tight. We're not doing it yet. Don't, don't pop it open just yet. I want to talk about a few things before we do that. Exodus that we're reading here is the story of the Hebrew Bible. And there's something compelling about this story. I think, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think there's been more movies made about this story than any other particular narrative. Like, there's just, there's a, there's a bunch of them trying to depict the events of the story. It's really, really compelling. This story is, for the Hebrew people, was the context, context for everything. This is going to be too small to actually read, but constantly throughout the Hebrew Bible, God kept referring back to say, hey, remember, I led you out of Egypt, so let's do this. Remember when I led you out of Egypt? Let's do this. It's all, all through, the, this is just a handful of the verses. And this story crafts how they were to live. Let me look, show you just two verses. This is fascinating. Two verses, Leviticus 19.34. Listen to what he says. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Why? You should love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. That story is supposed to craft how they interact with their neighbor. You needed rescue. Remember when I rescued you? Well, you need to treat every immigrant that way, as if you love them because you were once in that position. Boy, couldn't our world use that right now? Yes. Isn't that true? Leviticus 19.36, just two verses later, he's like, oh, by the way, you need to use honest scales. And this was essentially the old school way of cheating somebody out of money. You need to use honest scales. Why? Because I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of Egypt. It's supposed to shape your ethics and your morality, this truth. It's supposed to shape the way that this nation conducted themselves. And it created community. It was a shared story. They all had this as part of their history. Modern America does not have a shared story anymore. I, I, I think this is one of the reasons there's so much divisiveness in our culture. We don't have any shared stories. In fact, what happens today is if there's an event of national significance, we automatically try to hear the narrative of our team, of our side, and sometimes it's defined in opposition to the other side or the other team. There, there's no desire to try to have a shared story. It's, it's, why, it's why you feel the way you do about modern politics. It's not good because there's no shared story. There's no shared narrative. But listen, Christians do have a shared story. We do have a shared narrative. We do have a shared purpose. This is so cool to me. This story, Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, God says, listen, you have to celebrate this rescue every year. Here's the whole ceremony. You have to celebrate. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. 
They did that for about 1,500 years, and then Jesus came along and said, you remember that rescue, that our shared story, that when God rescued us from Egypt, you remember that? That was actually just a metaphor for me. And we are going to take that ceremony, and we are now going to make it about me, and the story is that you have been rescued from sin. That's our shared narrative, that we have been rescued from sin, that we were a mess, and we have been rescued by God. That we were in despair and we have been rescued, which is an opportunity that everyone has. There is no purpose or reason for us to be divided among Christians because we were all in the same boat and God rescued us. That's our shared narrative. God took us and created us in, in us a new community and a new nation. Look at what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 26 and 27. Jesus took that bread from the Passover meal, the Passover table, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, it's not about the exodus and God's rescue of the Hebrew people anymore. This is my body. This is about your rescue from sin now. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is not about what God did with the Passover lamb and spreading it over the doorway. This is about what I am about to do on the cross, which is, this is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God moved heaven and earth to rescue us from slavery to sin. It's the language of scripture. He moved heaven and earth to rescue us from slavery to sin. You have been formed into a new people. It is not defined by politics. It is not defined by borders. It's not defined by culture or ideology. It's not defined by your take, your hot take on world events. It's not defined by that. It's not defined by what narrative you agree with or you want to identify with to make yourself look cool in front of your friends. It's none of those things. Your narrative, your story is now defined by Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. That's what this meal, this communion is about, is that we are sharing with one another this story of rescue from sin. We have a shared story. We have to live that shared story. We have to let that shape our morality and our ethics and our choices and our life as we resign ourselves to being drawn to the cross. I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to take this uh, together. That's part of why we do it. We, it's shared. It's called communion because it's communal. And we're going to take it together, and, and, and we'll give you a, a few moments to reflect if that's part of the process of you taking communion. But we're going to sing uh, together. We're going to sing some lines from the Hebrew Bible, actually. Uh, and we're going to sing those together as well. Everything we do is, being, is part of this story that we're sharing together to remind ourselves of who we really are and whose we really are, that we serve an unstoppable God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for being able to be reminded of this, for, for stories in the Bible that are, that are fascinating, but that reveal these, these incredible truths of what you have done in the world and what you will do in our lives. So God, as we take this, this small little symbol of that Passover meal, of your rescue of, of your people from Egypt, I pray that we'd be reminded that we have been rescued from sin. Lord, I pray that we would know that and that this community would grow together even just because of what we're doing right here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me take it.